Hey all, welcome to the short-term show special episode series on the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. We are doing a 10 episode deep dive into buying short-term rentals in the Smoky Mountains. So we're gonna talk about a lot of things in these episodes and we'll probably be doing a quarterly update from here on out after we finish these 10. So make sure you hit that subscribe button so you get those delivered straight to your phone when they come out. Uh, we do have some supplemental materials for you in addition to the content on this podcast. So any information that you need on current property pricing, you can find on our website at theshorttermshop.com. And we also have, courtesy of our friends over at AirDNA, current AirDNA data for this market on our website as well. So you can check that out on theshorttermshop.com. And if you guys are interested in buying a property in the Smoky Mountains with a short-term shop agent, you can email us at agents at theshorttermshop.com. Or if you just want to learn more about buying short-term rentals in this market, you can join our Facebook group. We've created a 50,000 person community on Facebook all about investing in short-term rentals. You can join that. It's the same title as my book. It's called Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth. See you guys over there. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of How to Buy in the Smokies. And today we're going to talk about how to choose and build your buying team. So these are the people that you need to get you to the closing table. We'll talk about management people later. This is about actually buying the property, how to find agents, lenders, home inspectors, et cetera, questions to ask, all that fun stuff. So I've got a great panel here today and I will allow them to introduce themselves. Natalie, you go ahead and go first. Hey guys, my name is Natalie. I am an agent in the Smokies with Short Term Shop, and I am also an investor in the Smokies. All right, next we have Matt Castle. Hey, I'm a realtor with the Short Term Shop. Um, I've been here in the Smokies about four years. I've been a real estate investor for about 21 years now, so it's not a lot. Uh, it doesn't sound like a lot of time if you say it really fast. Yeah, you don't look old enough to have been an investor for 21 years. I got started when I was 25, I think, 24. Good for you. <laughs> Must be all the Greek olive oil that I consume now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yak Ray, you are next. Yeah, I'm Yak. I'm, I'm with the short-term shop as well. And I'm just south of the border in, you know, the Tennessee border in Georgia. And a lot of the information that, uh, you know, works well in the Smokies, works well is here. So hopefully I can lend a little, little different uh, a little twist on some information than the uh, than the guys that are right there in the heart of the Smokies. And last but not least, we have the famous Mr. Alex Sabio. How's it going, Alex? Well, I don't know about famous, but hey, how's everyone doing? Alex Sabio. <laughs> I live here in Southern California. I'm a real estate investor. I started investing in the Smokies uh, about two and a half years ago in the middle of COVID. Uh, and we've scaled it to, we got a fourth one under contract um, there in the Smoky Mountains. So. Awesome. Awesome. So he's an out of state buyer, which many of you listening, no matter what market you're buying in, a lot of times you can't live in the best market to invest. So you invest out of state. I do it. Lots of people do it. So uh, Alex will provide some really good perspective here. So thank you all for coming. So I want to start out with a, a question. It, it might be a little bit of a trick question. So do you start with finding an agent first or finding a lender first? Because a lot of times it's kind of a what came first, the chicken or the egg kind of a thing, because 
you can't, well, you can work with an agent, but a lot of agents are going to want to make sure that you have your pre-approval before we start working and going down that road. But then, um, so you would need to maybe find the lender first, but then a lot of times agents will have good lender recommendations. So which way do you guys go about it? Well, I'll go ahead really quick um, and say that for me personally, if, uh, you know, as an investor, I really want to find my agent first because I want to hear what uh, the uh, my agent has to say as far as lender recommendations. Um, I want to know who they recommend as far as someone who is considered a local lender. It doesn't necessarily mean that that lender lives or even has an office locally, but maybe it means more that they do most of their business locally. So I want a recommendation of a lender from my realtor because I want it to be a lender who um, is well-known by local appraisers um, and is going to have products that will meet the needs of what I'm trying to buy. I don't want a lender who specifically focuses on uh, residential or, or primary homes or things like that. So I want, I want my realtor to give me a really good recommendation of a local lender um, who has products to meet the needs of what I'm buying. That's a good answer. Anybody else agent or lender first? Yeah, I'll, I'll take this a little differently. I'll say get the lender first and to, you know, find a local lender, as Natalie said, and, and the good thing is the short term or, uh, you know, our kind of in-house lending, you know, they have an intimate knowledge of the Smokies area. So that's, you know, the mortgage shop is, is very tied into that. Um, but the reason I say a lender first is let's be honest. It's a lot easier to find a house than it is money. So take care of that on the front end. And I always tell my clients the the lender is going to kind of give us a roadmap of what we need to look at. You know, maybe you think you can only afford $400,000 home. Well, maybe that's not the case you know, or maybe you think you can afford an $800,000 home and that might not be the case. So in my opinion, it's kind of don't waste everybody's time. Get the financial roadmap first. That way we can go in with some pinpoint accuracy. But to Natalie's point, you might need to just kind of have a, a, a short conversation with the agent to find that local guy that you can trust. I'll echo both of those. Um, I'll ask for like a five minute conversation or less. That way, the the agent is not thinking that I'm wasting their time. You know, I'm essentially just reaching out and say, hey, what do you think of, you know, this house or this house? Don't write a book. Just tell me if you think it's this or that. But then I'll also say you got a really good lender that you can recommend uh, or maybe two, maybe three. That way I can compare this, that or the other. But uh, it's basically say, hey, how you doing? Um, interested in this. You know, who can I talk to? Who's your trusted vendor? Um, all that kind of good stuff. We think, I think you guys all, yeah, I think you guys all bring up good points. For me, it's about finding the realtor first because I know when I contacted my realtor, they were like, hey, the biggest bang for your buck is going after this. And, you know, I might get pre approved by some lender, like, I don't know, um, lending tree or something like that for 250000 And I go to my realtor and they're like, well, you can't afford anything here. You know, and I might need to, my realtor might say, hey, you know what, the biggest bang for your buck, these $800,000 five bedroom homes work extremely well versus getting something 600000 And at that point, I might say, you know what, that realtor is right. I might need to partner with someone at this point. 
because it makes no sense getting a $600,000 home or a $500,000 home that's really not generating as much cash flow when I'm getting a bigger bang for my buck, just going up a little bit more on price. That makes sense. So while we're we're on the subject of lenders, let's let's just go down this road. So whether your lender has been recommended by an agent, which we'll get to that in a second, I would imagine we're going to have a lot to say about agents with a bunch of agents in this room. But um, so let's talk about finding a lender. So what does a quote local lender mean? Because a lot of people, or I mean myself included, when I say we need to have a local lender. I like Natalie mentioned earlier, I don't necessarily mean one who like lives next door to the property. I mean, somebody who does a lot of deals of the asset class that I'm buying in, in that market. So I don't care if the lender lives in California and is doing my loan in Florida or Tennessee, because we're talking about Tennessee right now, uh, as long as they do loans of that asset class often in that market. So I'm not going to go to a lender who does a lot of apartment deals, commercial lending, when I'm trying to buy a single family home, even if they do it in that in that market all the time. So I'm looking for a lender who does short-term rental deals often and in the market that I'm in often so we don't have any snags. What do you guys think about that? Do you Or let's, I already kind of made the point, what snags have you seen people hit with using a lender who maybe just does a lot of primary homes or not in the right market? Because a lot of the, especially the big online lenders and, and nothing against them because they can be they can uh, be really useful when buying a primary home because it's kind of a, a totally different beast. But a lot of the online lenders, they're just, you know, doing primary homes all the time. And you click a button that says, oh, get more info or get an interest rate quote or something. And you're just being routed to whoever kind of round robin. And they might not know how to deal with some of the nuances of short-term rentals. So I want to hear some examples of, of snags that you have seen hit or problems that you've had with not using a lender who does that type of loan in that market often. I would say that appraisals are the number one snag that I hit whenever we have what you would call out of town lenders. Um, even if it's someone who is, you know, their office is physically local, but they don't do a lot of short term rental uh, loans, the types of loans that we use. Um, they so lenders are going to have a uh, they're going to use an AMC and that's going to be an appraisal management company. And just to, you know, not not to really go too deep into that, but. Um, the way that appraisers are assigned is sort of round robin. Yeah, well, I think some when they value short-term rentals, I want to make a point really quick. They're not necessarily valuing it based on what the property makes. They're still using residential sold comps. But like things that I've seen is where they assign value to the furniture, which we know that doesn't matter. The furniture is not real estate. And so then that gets a little wacky. Whereas the appraisers who are in there doing that all the time know that the furniture has no value. So um, I've seen that happen before. And yeah, that was the main point I wanted to make was about yeah. that. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of, with a, with a lender, the advantages here, and I have three points that I share with my clients, and this will, this will apply to any state is number one, Avery, you know, let, you know, going into what you were saying about the finance, about, about the classes of property and things like that. Also, you want to work with a lender who will understand the financial profile of an investor, of an investor, because the, you know, the, the person that's buying a primary, it's a lot different than Alex, you know, who's on, on this with us. So, you know, they got to be able to kind of sort through 
those numbers, you know, their tax returns, all their information, um, because it is different. It's a different workload. So, you know, having having a lender that does understand the financial profile of an investor will definitely help. Um, secondly, I want a local guy because I want somebody who locally, who knows the contracts and has intimate knowledge of the contracts in that particular state. Okay. Contingencies work differently throughout, you know, throughout this country in different states. So somebody who knows, you know, if it's Tennessee contracts, I want my lender to understand how the contingency works in that and is best able to protect me as a buyer and not put my earnest money at risk. Okay. And the third thing, you know, I'm going to echo what you guys have already said is, you know, you want, you want a local lender who has contacts and is able to kind of build a local panel of appraisers. You know, we see it all the time. Here comes the guy that has the, the mortgage from lending tree and they're bringing in an appraiser, you know, from Lord knows where from Memphis, Tennessee, you know, I, I'm, I'm making that up, but you know, they may be coming from 90 minutes away and that's not going to be beneficial to you because they're not going to understand that this property on this side of the train tracks is worth significantly more than this property on this side of the train tracks. If they don't have local knowledge of that, if the appraisers don't understand the the pricing dynamics, which can be you know kind of tricky in a lot of these a lot of these areas, um, you may be stuck with a uh, bad appraisal. Now, look, since the Dodd Frank Act came in, and I believe that's it, you know, working with these appraisals has become more and more difficult. They're they're a little more autonomous. Good, bad, or indifferent, it is what it is. But I think working with a local appraiser will give you a better chance of getting a good appraisal. A thing that that has tripped me up before as I was thinking about things that have happened is lenders who don't do a lot of deals in the Smokies or in cabin markets, um, they classify a lot of things as, quote, true log cabins. So most of the cabins in the Smokies are not true log. They're just stick built houses with cabin look siding on them. So they look like cabins. Whereas what I mean by a true log cabin is the actual logs stacked on top of each other. And lenders don't like the actual logs stacked on top of each other. I think for obvious reasons, it's kind of a lot to deal with. Um, but they will mistakenly label a house as a true log cabin when it's not it's stick built you could rip that siding right off and slap on some some other color and it wouldn't be you know wouldn't look like a cabin anymore so that's happened to me a couple of times with using seemingly random lenders is they can uh misassign a property as a true log cabin when it's not yeah the on the lending side you you have to be careful absolutely you know a lot of lenders can, I don't know if the words tolerate, like, or whatever, a true log isn't that big of a deal. But as a buyer, and, and this is real quick, Matt, before I let you jump in, where there will be a roadblock is if you're going into the jumbo category on a true log, numbers can change significantly. I've seen some lenders will only do a minimum of 35% down on a jumbo loan for a true log. So 
again, to your point, Avery, yes, that can be. If if people aren't familiar with working with the log cabins and they, they're like you said, most of them are a frame built deal with just, you know, wooden facade. But in the cases where it is a true log and they're not familiar with it, you could, your buyer could get into a pretty bad situation pretty quickly. I know for me as a rookie, when I first started, my lender owned short-term rentals in that market. And that kind of just relieved a lot of stress that I had or, you know, uncertainties that I had. And it gave me the confidence. And it was almost like having another underwriter there. Like, are you sure this is going to be okay? Because they'll nix it right off the bat if it's not going to be a good deal. You know, uh, that happens a lot in commercial. And now it was me just creating an amazing relationship with that person. And now it's like whenever I pick up the phone, hey, I got another one. And they already know every like all my homes like the street names they're like oh what about this one and this one we did it um you know uh last month um so just creating that amazing relationship um has been key for me to be honest with you and it might be reckless the relationship's more important than anything else because i don't even i'm not even interviewing her for the rates or anything like that because i know that person is going to look out for me and you know this lender has done so many deals in that market that they're familiar with all the nuances that you guys have been talking about. So, I agree with that. I think the relationship is more important. The relationship in anything in real estate is most important. And I want to highlight, so a lot, like absolutely rate shop. Like you want to make sure that you're getting the best rate, the best deal, the best everything. But I want, also wanted to throw in, like be careful, careful about recklessly wasting people's time. Like if you know you have no intention of using a lender, but they have a really low rate, like don't waste that poor person's time um, trying to like get a better rate, use them to get a better rate from, from a different lender. And um, treat also, treat your lender with respect because I know it can get really, really annoying when it seems like they're asking you for the same document like four or five times throughout close throughout the closing process. And you're like, I already sent you this, but maybe you maybe they need another piece of it or something. And it can get really tedious and feel like they need a blood sample and your firstborn child to get you to the closing table. And it's a very stressful time. Like this is a really big investment, especially if you're new. I remember how I felt on my first one. It was terrifying. Lost a lot of sleep that month. And um, it's really easy. We all turn into the worst versions of ourselves in our first few deals. And sometimes not our first few because uh, it's a lot of money at stake and, and it's a big investment. And it's very easy to get mad at people um, when, when they, you feel like, you know, you're under a lot of stress and they're asking you for all this stuff and they need it. Oh, you didn't send them the la very last page of the bank statement that didn't have anything on it. It just says last page on it. Like they, these are things that they have to have. Um, but eventually you are going to need to call your lender back at some point when the deal's over next year, you need something for your tax docs and you forgot, and you're going to have to call them and ask for something. And if you were an asshole to them, they're not, you're not going to be first on their list of like non-urgent items. And I just, I, I think that's really important that we all get really heated in these deals and it's important to treat people with respect at all times, even if you're really upset about things. Cause you never know when you are going to have to call them back and ask them for something. <laughs> and just to add to both of your points, Alex is so right about relationships, it's, it, particularly with lenders. And I have seen clients who put themselves in 
they don't, they don't know that it's coming, but they put themselves in a situation where I absolutely agree that you should shop rate, but if you have a relationship with a lender and you make a decision to go with a different lender because they can save you like a quarter of a point on interest rate, something that like in the grand scheme of things, at the moment it feels significant, but in the grand scheme of things, it isn't. You can put yourself in a situation where you're trying to save, you know, save a little bit of money, but now you put yourself in a situation where you're with a lender who isn't as familiar with your personal situation, like Alex was saying, but also with the market. You know, I've seen people jump from a recommended local lender to rocket mortgage because they're, you know, XYZ, they could do whatever better, whatever the rate or the fees or whatever. Um, and it came back, you know, of course, obviously, sometimes it could work out, but a lot of times it comes back to bite you. You end up with a an appraiser that, uh, you know, doesn't do right by you. And then you end up losing the deal because it won't, it won't appraise or something just to save, you know, just to save a few pennies. Yeah. I, I had somebody recently basically try to swap lenders over $17 a month. Okay. It's their money. Look, you know, like, you know, spend your money how you will. Um, over $17 a month. We're talking about, you know, a lunch at Chick-fil-A with the family and ended up putting $25,000 in earnest money at risk because of this and the close of bill. I mean, I'm just thinking to myself, like you did this for $17 a month. Like, you know, you're willing to take a chance on putting $25,000. Luckily, the sellers had a heart of gold. Okay. And let us kind of extend things, but they could have took, they could have took 25 grand at the, at the end of the day and said, too bad. So sad. Wow. That's insane. And you know, the Smokies is such a competitive market that you really have to be careful because sellers aren't always inclined to give you an extension, even if it's for very legitimate reasons, the lender needs a few more days or whatever sellers they're not scared to put it back on the market a lot of times here. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, it's getting a lot better. I mean, we definitely got our asses handed to us with that uh, last year, like beginning of 2022 and end of 2021 with with sellers not refusing to extend even like two or three days because of a lending thing. And um, that sucked a lot because sometimes it is something that gets caught up in underwriting at the last minute. And it has to be, you know, it has to be documented. And then they have the three-day TRID rule on the conventional loans. And um, that that sucked really bad. And that doesn't happen as much anymore, but it really, it happened a lot in, in 2021 and 2022. But on that uh, I note, would give a I would give a quick tip to um, potential investors who are working with these kinds of lenders. Uh, when they ask something or they're trying to you know reach you and get a, a bit of information operate on the principle of hurry up and then wait because it's not necessarily the lender that's asking for this stuff it's the underwriter or it's somebody else so the delay that you have of three days getting them back a simple bank statement with uh, the bank's name or the web address at the bottom of the pdf printout i mean i've literally almost lost deals because the buyer got so upset that they didn't know how to click a certain box on their printer settings to put in the HTTP full web link. And once I showed them, like, oh, well, that was really simple. I was like, yeah, but you waited three days and you've lost sleep and you're worried about this and that, you know, just whatever they asked for, send it. 
as quickly as you possibly can. That way the lender can get that off and whoever needs to review it can review it. Totally. Sorry, that was my soapbox for the day. No, well, you're about to have some more because we're getting into the agent section and everybody here is going to have a lot to say. I have a mm -hmm. lot to say. And I will start with my book has like 700 and something reviews. It has three one-star reviews, two of which were from agents who didn't like what I had to say about agents. The other one was from a guy that got kicked out of the Facebook group for being an asshole. Um, so... I, have, I, I catch some heat for my opinions on this, but I don't care because I'm here to help uh, investors and I'm not here to help other agents. Um, choosing an agent. Let's start there. I have a list of three questions that are in my book that, that I think are important. One is, and this is where I catch some heat from agents, is how many deals did you do last year? Uh, I like to know that an agent has done a lot of deals, not because... I have anything against people who don't or work part-time as an agent or are new, but I, how many deals they do a month or a year directly correlates to how hard they have their finger on the pulse of the market. So if you're going with what I call an Aunt Susie agent who's been in the business for 40 years, but she does like three or four deals a year, you know, two years ago, you would have been up shit creek because everything was so crazy. You had to make $100,000 over asking offers just to be considered. And somebody who's doing four, four deals a year might not have known that. Like they might not have been in that situation and it would have been really hard for them to get you a deal. Uh, now it's the opposite. So somebody who Aunt Susie maybe did four deals last year when it was really crazy, this year she might advise you to do the same thing, 100,000 over asking because the market was really crazy last time she did a deal, but it's not like that anymore. It is, you can negotiate. So you want an agent who's doing, you know, three, four, five deals a month uh, is going to kind of have a, be keeping up with where the market is a little bit better um, than somebody who's not doing that many. And again, it's nothing against agents who don't do a lot of volume, but it is reality. Uh, the other thing is I want to know how many of those deals that they did were short-term rentals versus primary homes, because that makes a difference too. I, they're doing work upstairs and they're banging around. Sorry. Uh, I have seen personally, um, I've had investors call me back when I was working in Nashville and say, Hey, I found this million dollar house. Let's put an offer in on it. And I'd never met them before. They just knew that I was a short-term rental person. And I would look at it and I'd say, this is not by any stretch of the imagination zoned for short-term rental. Yes, it's a cool house, but you can't do it. So if you call an Aunt Susie agent who doesn't know that, then, and they did, they, maybe they did 40 deals last year, but they were all primary homes where you don't have to worry about zoning. They might've made that offer and you might end up with a house, million dollar house that you can't do what you wanted to do with it because the agent wasn't aware and you might not have done your due diligence either. So you want to make sure that they do just like the lender, a lot of deals of the asset class that you're trying to buy. So if somebody comes to me and says, Avery, I want to buy a 20 unit apartment building. I'm not the person for that. I am a bad decision. If you're trying to buy single, I mean, multifamily long-term that's, I don't work in that market. I don't know it as well. So it's the same thing. If you're trying to buy a short-term rental, you want to find an agent who does a lot of short-term rentals because they're experienced in it. Um, what else do you guys think they need to be asking? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it is the asset class conversation. You know, somebody that is familiar with short-term rentals and understands what, here's the biggest thing. 
if you work with an agent that doesn't understand that, they don't know what winning offers are looking like, right? You are not going to be able to be competitive. I mean, that, that's it. You know, I mean, if, if, if you're working with somebody that's, that doesn't, you know, that isn't, you know, in the investment sphere 24-7, you're just not going to make offers that make sense. You're either going to be overpaying for stuff um, and, and getting your, you know, your teeth knocked out, or you're just not going to win anything. And either way, it's, you know, not going to be good. Um, I also say kind of, you know, be cautious of the, you know, of the agent that's not, that's a little too eager and not willing to tell you no. You know what I mean? We, we, we all know that guy, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of agents that are just going to say, you know, hey, hey, Susie, that's a great idea. Hey, Larry. Yeah, th that one's it. Yeah, let's let's write an offer for it right now. I'm, I'm sitting at my computer. That's not the guy you want. I mean, you want somebody that's willing to kind of bloody your nose and say, hey, look, Avery, that's that's not the right. That's not the right property. That doesn't work in this market if you're trying to run a short term rental. You know what I mean? You got to have the person that's the agent that's, you know, willing to have that conversation with you and willing to kind of push back. And as I say, kind of, you know, set up the little, you know, pull up the bumpers on the bowling alley to make sure we kind of go down the path that we need to do, <laughs> uh, you know, to make sure we're, we're bowling strikes here. So, uh, again, having that agent that that has a intimate trust and, and knowledge of, you know, the, the market. And lastly, I think you need to be able, and, and I mean this kind of seriously, you need to kind of find an agent that you think you can sit down and drink a beer with, you know, somebody that you can trust. Um, if if they're not approachable and they don't pick up their phone when you call or they don't text you. Um, I do I, not pick up my phone when anyone calls. Well, look, <laughs> the, the reality is, though, there's some agents that are just too scared to because they don't want to have an awkward conversation with you, you know. And you need to find that agent that's willing to have that awkward conversation with you. And again, kind of slap your head and slap your hand and say, bad idea. Um, so for, for me, those are a few of the things that I would tell people to look for. I'd be curious to see what as well as what Alex says, since he's kind of on the on the other side of the curtain. Well, Avery, I just want to let you know, I gave you a five-star review on, on Amazon. That wasn't me that I gave a bad it. review or anything <laughs> like that. So Thank you. Um, <laughs> Um, I think, you know, right away, um, there's a lot of, um, there's so many realtors out there. You ask them, Hey, do you work with the investors? They say, yeah. And it's like this little quick answer or whatever. Of course I work with, uh, you know, uh, other, um, uh, investors. And so when you start talking to them about short-term rentals, they can go on and on and they have so much knowledge in that market. Um, ideally you want them to own or manage short-term rentals in that market. Because like with me as an out-of-state investor who's 2,000 miles away, I have no idea. I'm not even, I, I have no idea the all the little, you know, exact locations, what works and what doesn't. Sometimes it's just a block away and that rental doesn't work well, right? So you want someone that knows and you just want them to be truthful. Sometimes I want them to tell me off like that, dude, what do you think? That's not going to work, you know? I, I, uh, I sent my agent... Uh, a really like for some reason uh, the property was undervalued 
it was like a four bedroom in a certain location. And they said, you know what, dude, um, that that area has some well issues. And so let's stay away from that. Let's find something else. And so that's where I know I can build a relationship because I'm not in this to just buy one, one and done. I'm trying to build like a whole, like, you know, build it out four five, six rentals in the area. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my issue. I just want them to be really truthful to me. And sometimes I'll send them listings and the inexperienced um, uh, realtor will kind of just say yes to everything, right? But they're like, no, you need to stay away from here. I think we could get you a better deal over here in this area. So, Yeah, to, to Yacht and Alex's point, um, one of the things that Yacht always uses the term uh, bloody your nose a little, but I always use the term, uh, I'm going to be very big sister about all of the, any of these properties that we're looking at. I'm going to big sister you. Um, I'm going to be the one that's going to tell you that we really don't like you can wear that outfit if you want to, but you you probably shouldn't. Right. So <laughs> so I I, I mean, I, I I try to make sure and tell my clients that during the first call and I try to tell them enough during the first call to let them know that um, I fully understand and have been where you are as an investor, where there's a handful of things that you don't even know that you don't know. So when I can talk to a realtor, uh, a new realtor in a new market, and on my very first phone call within the first 30 minutes, they've already told me very quickly, not long and drawn out, but very quickly, the most important things I need to know about investing in this market. Um, and they've also already told me before we even looked at a property that they are willing to tell me to stay away from certain things. Um, that trust level just goes through the roof. You know, and, and so I really try to take what I want as an investor in a market other than the Smokies. When I'm looking in other markets, what what do I want to hear? What do I want? And I try to do that for my clients. And that's really, uh, I, I think that's really important. And just like Alex said, there's plenty of times where my clients will send me things and, you know, just really having someone who fully understands a market well enough to know um, sometimes I'll be driving and someone will call and they'll say, hey, I, I see a property that I'm really interested in. I can literally just say, what street is it on? And usually by them telling me the name of a street, I can say, oh, no, you can't short term rent that. Or something like Alex said, that area is kind of known for, you know, water issues or whatever the case may be. I can usually tell them right off the bat. And that's what I want as an investor as well. Yeah, same with all that. Uh, I tell all of my people on the initial uh, call because I'm, I'm older and I try to get people on the phone rather than text them. Um, I, I essentially tell them, look, I'm, I'm probably going to tell you no on at least a third of the stuff that you send me just because I know where it is, what it is, what's downwind of it uh, or what's upwind of you, what kind of road that you got, et cetera. You know, so you may get a, a bad review based off of this one little narrow lane road or because this road may flood. Um when it comes, uh, you know, spring rains. So, you know, all that honesty stuff is important. So when you send them a link to, you know, something, um, they know that it's already sort of passed your smell test and they need to give it a look. I'll add something else. So I actually, and this can be a little difficult to find. I prefer if I'm going into a new market to hire an agent that is not also a property manager because they're, yes, they'll know, they'll know about managing rentals in the market, but I don't like how many 
potential conflicts of interest that presents for me as the buyer. Um, especially, you know, I don't want to, I don't want any opinions on whether I should self-manage or why I need to use a manager, a manager. I had, when we first started selling properties in the Smokies, I had so many clients get called by the manager that was managing the property and, um, you know, explain to them how the, the house was going to burn down if they weren't going to use them. Or even when I was buying my own properties, I had managers actually, and I can't prove this and I can't say who it was more than one uh, who would actually break things in the house because I said, no, you know, we're not, we're not going to keep it on the, on the management program. We're going to manage it ourselves, which, you know, maybe I shouldn't have said we're going to manage it ourselves. I was a little too headstrong at the time in my youth, but they would break things before closing. So to try and make me see how hard it was and why I needed them, uh, which didn't work. But um there was one that did end up with a BB gun hole through the window and it was in such a place that there aren't any kids, weren't going to be any kids running around with BB guns. So I have, I have questions about that. Um, but I just, there's too many, even if everyone has all the best intentions in the world, there's just too many opportunities for a conflict of interest to arise there. So even if you do want them to manage your property, what if, for example, in the Smokies, most of their cleaners only handle the Wares Valley and Pigeon Forge area, but you're looking at something in Gatlinburg and they don't have a cleaner to service that. They might say this place over here in Wares Valley is a better deal than this place in Gatlinburg, even if the Gatlinburg is a better deal because they can't service that. So there's just any number of, I'm not saying that anyone ever has bad intentions, but I mean, the road to hell is paved with good ones. So uh, I, I just find that to be a bit of a conflict of interest. I'm sure there are people who disagree with me. And even if it's not an actual one, there's too much potential for a conflict of interest to arise there, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. And and also going back to the asset class and, and you want an agent that sold a lot of cabins because buying a cabin is uh, significantly different than just buying a house in town, you know, buying a you know, uh, a townhouse in downtown Knoxville, you know, cabins have their nuances. Like, what do they know about metal roofs? You know, when they're asking for your opinion, what do they, what do they know about a deck and what to look for with a deck? What do they know about a well or a septic, you know, location in the septic field, the leach field and all that? If you're working with somebody who doesn't have knowledge of specifically buying the cabins and you ask them to do a virtual tour for you, man, you know, what do they say? Garbage in, garbage out. Um, you know, you could run into a case where, you know, again, that, that agent doesn't have knowledge of all these nuances of buying a cabin and you, the buyer, who's probably never done it, never may have never even stepped foot into a cabin. You could put yourself in a bad situation. Um, because that agent let you make a mistake. Dude, I had this, this, I have an example of that. So uh, one time I had a client was buying something from out of town and we were looking at this new construction in Wares Valley and it was beautiful. And it was back when everything was really affordable. And um, so <laughs> sent him videos and it had a beautiful view. And um, he said, okay, I'm going to have my friend come out there and look at it with you. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. Send the friend. And so I heard the friend on the phone saying, yeah, uh, it's kind of a long way from the side of this deck to the ground. And if somebody fell off, they would really hurt themselves. And I didn't hear what the guy said, what the other end of the phone call said. And then I heard the guy say, 
yeah, that's why they pay me the big bucks. And then hung up, whatever, we go home. My client calls me a little while later and says, hey, I don't think I want to buy it. My friend said it won't make a good short-term rental. So I look up the friend and he was a realtor in Knoxville, which is not that far away. It's about 45 minutes away. It's the closest big-ish, medium-sized metropolitan area. And this guy didn't sell any cabins. Of course, of course, you know, I being petty was like, who is this guy? And like looked all at everything only sells primary homes. And he talked this guy out of a really good deal because if, if someone were to fall off the deck, they would hurt themselves, which I think, you know, anyone could fall off of any deck and hurt themselves. So, um, but that guy didn't know he didn't get it. And that guy lost a deal because of that. And anyway, um, I have a, a few other things I want to hit on, on agents. I know we could all talk about this all day, but, uh, so one thing, again, with the, with the agents that do a lot of deals thing, as we mentioned earlier, relationships are the most important thing in real estate and agents who do a lot of deals, not only have a lot of relationships with past clients who might be interested in selling, but also other agents in the market. So Alex has benefited from this in the past. So if I know something is falling out of contract, that's cool. Uh, or, uh, somebody's like decided not to buy something, I text Jennifer, Alex's agent, and I'm like, this is something Alex would like, see if he wants it, uh, because he's he's been a great client, and uh, he gets a lot of deals from us that way. And also having having a good relationship with other agents in the market, and this is where I catch heat from, from agents when I say stuff like this, if you're out there doing a lot of business with a lot of people and you're doing a good job not only for your clients, but if you're someone that they don't hate working with, they're going to call you when stuff pops up for them. Um, if I get calls all the time from agents who are like, hey, I've got a four bedroom with a pool coming up. Do you have anybody for it? Well, yeah, we actually do. And so we'll get that done before they even before they even get it on the market. So having all of those relationships and having good relationships, not only with investors, but other agents is very important. So what do you guys think about that? Well, if you, are you a benefit or um, a liability, right? So the easier you are to work with, the more deals you're going to get. I mean, it's, it's just kind of that way. Um, there are those, you know, when agents are working with other agents, I, I hate to say it this way, but, you know, if you see your uh, iPhone pop up with a certain person's name, you may say, oh, God, not this one. But, you know, if it's another agent, you may say, oh, awesome. I know this person very well. Uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, we exchange dad jokes, whatever. So it is, as long as you can make yourself um, some kind of a benefit to that other person, or at least, you know, fun to talk to, it's going to help you every single time. So this is, a, this is a tricky one for me because, you know, whenever I'm looking at other markets, looking at, you know, potential using an agent in another market, um, I really wish that I knew what their relationships were like with the other agents in that area that do a lot of business. And it's that's a very, very hard thing to know, right? Which goes back to, you know, Avery's recommendation of asking, like, how many deals are you closing? Um, it really boils down to, so back in the Smokies or uh, back in like 2021 in the Smokies, when every single thing that hit the market was multiple offers, um, there were, you know, whenever you have 20 offers coming in, you can bet that the top five offers are going to be very similar, right? And so when you're in the top five offers, 
Um, first of all, that means that your agent has coached you well, back to what Yawk was saying earlier. Your 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 agent has coached you because they know what what's winning, what formula is winning with offers. And so I have had situations where I know for a fact, because the list agent said that the top two offers came down to splitting hairs and the seller, uh, the list agent ultimately advised the seller to choose my client's offer because they had done deals with me in the past and I was very easy to work with. And that's not, I'm not saying that to toot my horn. I'm saying that because relationships matter. And so I try really hard in every transaction as an agent to make sure that for my client's sake, that I am easy to work with, you know, fighting for what's best for my clients, but in the best, most respectful possible way. Um, and so, but that's a tough metric to know as an investor, you know, that's really tough to know. Um, but you really, I mean, I guess you really could uh, base it a little bit on how many transactions they're getting done, you know, especially, you know, I know we're not in multiple offers anymore, so we're not in a situation where, you know, an offer might get chosen over another uh, similar offer because of, you know, relationships, but it still matters. You know, even whenever it's slower, it still really matters because like Avery was saying, you know, we, I have agents in the Smokies who will uh, not, not short-term shot agents who will reach out and say, Hey, I've got this listing coming. You've sold three for me in the past month. I'm just giving you a heads up. If you have any clients who are looking like, I've got this coming. I'd really like to do another deal with you. And our clients benefit from that. And as an investor, I want that agent. Right. And, you know, it, it, it's so true. The agents that are easy to work with are going to get more deals and easy to work with and knowledgeable too, right? You don't want, you know, people, you know, as Matt said, you know, with the lenders, if you if you find a lender that's kind of using terms interchangeably that shouldn't be, same thing with an agent. If you find an agent that are using terms inter interchangeably and shouldn't be, um, you know, never a good thing. But you know, you you want one that's knowledgeable and one easy to, easy to work with. And you know, I, I can't tell you how many times an agent, you know, we've put in an offer and probably been off the mark by maybe five or ten thousand dollars, but the sellers for whatever reason, you know, life comes at you fast. They needed to, they needed to close in 28 days. Okay. Okay. I had one that called me and said, Hey, can you close this in 21? And that, that agent happened to work with me with the local lender that I provided to them. So the same local lender before, and we closed a deal in 21 days. And even though our offer was weaker on paper from a, you know, money standpoint, we got the deal. You know, because he knew we were going to close the deal. A lot of agents, you know, hey, I'm going to peel, peel back the curtain here and let everybody understand. A lot of agents, and especially on the list side, they're going to coach their clients toward the direction of closability as much as they are money. Closability is huge because nobody wants to waste time. Time is money. Period. Yeah. End. You know, if if you're an investor and in, in, or if you're listing a home and you know, you're going to, you don't have to make a couple more months of mortgage payments toward that in taxes and interest. And, you know, somebody's going to come in and close that deal in 30 days and get you out from under it. You know, they're going to, they're going to coach you toward closability. So again, being known as an agent that is 
you know, holds to his word and is able to bring clients to the table with a high likelihood of closability is going to help you buy properties, period, the end. Yeah. And I think I want to build on that a little bit. So if I'm a listing agent and especially, you know, back in 2021, when there were tons of offers on everything and, and the top five would be uh, similar, I would present all of the facts to my clients to let them make the best decision for themselves. So I'm showing them obviously all the terms of the contract and I'm saying, okay, I've worked with this agent X amount of times, this agent X amount of times, and this agent X amount of times. And this agent I know always makes really high offers and then tries to beat the hell out of you on the inspection to get like forty, fifty thousand $50,000 off. This agent's a little more of a straight shooter. I've in the deals that I've done with them previously, you know, that what you see is pretty much what you get. If there's any real concerns, they'll, they'll ask for them, but they're not playing games. Um, so I, I try to present the track record of, of the agents as well to all of my listing clients and obviously let them make their own decisions about which way they want to go. But I want them to have the full picture of, uh, of the deal. So, um, I also, there's one thing that I wanted to hit on in terms of negotiation style that I think is important and a word that I see a lot of people use all the time that I don't like that I think is actually a detriment to negotiations for you as a buyer. And that word is bulldog. So a lot of people are like, yeah, I'm a bulldog. I'm a fighter. I fight for my clients. So that I don't think that in 2023, as a millennial, <laughs> that that is a good, uh, beneficial for the client negotiation strategy. And here's why. So if you're put yourself in an agent or a buyer or a seller's position, if you are being quote bulldogged by the other side, it comes across as unreasonable and unwilling to negotiate. So an agent or a buyer who comes to me as a listing agent or a seller, who's like, okay, here's the deal. These things are wrong. These are the things that don't make sense for us. What can we do to come to a resolution here that works for everyone? That is going to get a lot farther. I think in just general negotiations, you know, you get, like I tell my four-year-old all the time, you get more bees with honey. You will get further. You will get more as a buyer by being straightforward and saying, these are the things that I need and here's why, rather than just going in guns blazing, like knocking everybody in the face, busting heads, like, no, I always get this much and this is how much we want off and everybody else is doing this and blah. It, it just gives, if someone's coming like that to me as an agent, I'm going to tell the seller like, hey, here's what they're asking for. They're being super aggressive about it. I, I don't think we're going to get uh, we're, we're obviously going to try our best with this, but if somebody's coming at you super aggressive, it gives the impression that there's no room to negotiate when there might be. And the other side of the deal might say, okay, well, I guess we're too far off. We'll just, you know, whatever, we're not going to give you anything or we're not going to take anything. So I just, I don't, th I think that's a very old school mentality of the bulldog thing. And that that's a trigger word for me. Um, I just, I don't think that that is representing a client in the best way possible to get them the best deal possible by kind of creating tension in the deal where as if everyone would have stayed a little more civil, then you might have been able to get quite a bit more than if you go in like busting heads out of the gate. 
in the Smokies, we are such a small town. Like I know that we're, we're big on the scale of our tourism, but we're a small town and everyone knows everybody and every agent knows everybody and relationships are so important that to Avery's point, if you, like, I can promise you as a client, as an investor buying in the Smokies, if that is the personality or the style of your agent, that is not what you want. That is not what you want because we have a lot of agents who <clears throat> have been doing real estate in Sevier County for 20 or 30 years. And that's not who they want to work with. They want to work with someone who is going to be very pleasant to work with and understand that it's all about win-win for both sides. Negotiation should happen a certain way. So Avery's absolutely right, particularly in the Smokies. And I imagine everywhere, but in the Smokies, you do not want someone who sounds like a radio commercial uh, injury attorney. You know, I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to, we're going to drop the hammer. We're going to get every single penny we can get for you. That is not what you want in the Smokies. Yeah, you guys hit the nail on the head. You know, the bulldog style, it is, it's just dated. You know, today, culturally, everybody's different. You know, us agents, I'll say it again, we want to work. We're, we're, we're really striving for best deal and closability. You know, when, when you have, you know, a lot of deals in the pipelines, you can only get so much heartburn. Okay. And <laughs> that's just the reality about it. Like we, we, we want to kind of manage that. So, you know, dealing with knuckleheads just isn't something <laughs> most people want to do And the sellers as well. I'm not even saying from the, from, you know, a lot of these sellers are busy people too. You know what I mean? So they don't want extra heartburn. They're already having to probably, they're probably selling. They're as nervous as you are about the whole deal. So don't be a knucklehead there. Don't be an agent that's trying to be a knucklehead. And another thing on the on the bulldog thing that is just stupid is you don't know what sort of leverage you have, right? Are you the only offer or are there four other offers? Because guess what? If you're going in, your agent's bragging about being a bulldog, he goes in like he's just going to take control of this situation. And little do they know, the backup offer is $1,000 less. The list agent can say, you know, hey, Alex, let's kick these buyers to the curb because this isn't worth $1,000 of our time and effort. And guess what? A lot of times the sellers are going to say, I agree with you. So, you know, it's just... It, it, it's crazy, you know, somebody that goes in that brags about that. They're, they're just, they're, they're not, they're not representing you the best way possible because the reality is 10% of us agents in the market control 90% of it. And it's easy to piss off the right people. And you, you know, that agent is basically going to do a disservice to their buyers for a long, long time. 100%. Closability is key. And if I know that, you know, exactly like Yacht said, if even if we only have two offers on the table and one is going to make my seller more money, but the other, but, it, but I know that that agent has a really hard time getting things to the closing table. That's a factor. And I'm, I'm probably well, you're going to let your seller know that it's a factor. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to let them know that that's a factor. Yep. Yeah.
one other thing on the bulldog thing it's there's so much information on the internet now about how to study and deal with the bulldog personality um you know there's numerous books uh in terms of that there's numerous video tutorials on youtube that you can watch on how to deal with those um it's unpleasant when you have to deal with it but it's also very easy to counter you know if you're if you're experienced in dealing with those kind of people so um if you're coming at me with a bulldog kind of mentality, I know pretty much how to parry almost every bulldog attitude that you can throw at me. So, you know, sometimes I might even like it when the other agent's a bulldog because, um, you know, might work to their disadvantage. All right. So the last point I want to hit on agents before we get to vendors is you might want to ask an agent and this is going to sound rude. And again, the agents are going to come stone me about this, but ask the agent if they're getting a referral fee for uh, for where they got the business from. Um, and here's an example of that. So, I, and I'm totally, I'm not against referral fees in general before all the agents come to burn my house down. If like, <laughs> hey, I need, I want to buy a property in Denver and I don't know anyone in Denver, but you know, my friend who, uh, is also an agent, knows someone in Denver and introduces me to an agent in Denver, then yes, that would be a referral fee situation. What I don't like and I don't think is is working in a client's best interest is when agents set up referral like networks in order to create passive income for themselves off of that referral network. So here's what I mean by that. Uh, there was a uh, probably last year I was looking at a market that I didn't end up buying in. Uh, but an agent that I knew in another market who is a friend um, who does a lot of like uh, courses and things said, oh, she owns stuff there. And I said, oh, do you can I send me your agent? I, I'm interested in buying there. And so she sent me an agent. And so I'm starting talking to this agent and this agent is brand new, never done a deal before, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'm like, oh, I thought that so and so had, had been working with you. And she said, oh, no, 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 she just sends me clients. And I'm like, hmm, okay. So I go back to the other one and I'm like, hey, you know, this girl's cool and all, but she's never like, she's she doesn't sound like she does much business. Like, did you buy with her? And she said, no, no, I buy with this other guy, but he doesn't offer me referral fees. And I'm like, okay, so <laughs> I need somebody who really knows the market. And I'm like, I would like to make sure that I'm buying the, making the best decision for myself. Uh, so, all right. And I ended up like just going to leaving that situation altogether and just finding somebody on my own. So you want to make sure that you're being referred because someone thinks you're being referred to that agent because someone thinks that that agent is the best in the business. So if I'm sending a client, like I've got a guy in Chattanooga, we don't work in Chattanooga. I send him tons of people who ask about Chattanooga and I don't ask for a referral fee because he's the best. And he, he does not need to pay me for that. I like to refer people to the best people. And again, I'm not against referral fees in the right situation, but I don't think that creating that, that passive income off of referral fees is working in the best interest of a client uh, for that exact reason that I just gave that example. So the last thing that I want to hit on is, is vendors. So in the Smokies, there are several vendors that you're going to need to get 
uh, to the closing table that are going to be up to you to choose. Uh, your home inspector is one of them. A lot of times in the Smokies, there are a few other things that you're going to need to get done inspection-wise. Uh, sometimes a pest inspection, which will typically be a different inspector than your home inspector. Uh, if you're if you're getting a pool cabin, uh, a pool inspector or company is going to be a different person than your regular home inspector. And then also if you're if the cabin is on a well, which is really, really common in the Smokies, you might want a well inspection. And where people get confused and mixed up on that well inspection is I, I'm talking about getting the well pump and the technical pieces of the well inspected, not the water quality, uh, because it's all typically the same. I mean, you can totally get a water quality test if you want. I'm going to tell you right now what it's going to say. No matter what you get, it's going to come back coliform positive and they want you to shock it, which is fine. But I'm talking about the real, and that's like 200 bucks. That's cheap. I'm talking about the actual pump and the mechanics of it, which is not cheap. Uh, so how do you guys, or Alex, let's, let's hear from you since we just did a lot of agent talk. So how do you <laughs> vet slash find your, home inspectors and um, things like that. I don't. I vet the real estate agent and they give me everything, right? <laughs> and that's really the the work, right? There's no way. I'm 2,000 miles away. Investors out there, okay? I want to speak to the investors because they'll go and Google everything and you're just creating so much more work for yourself, you know, versus your agent. If you did your job and found the right agent, they're going to know exactly who. Um and I am a victim of that, right? Like I tried to refinance my first short-term rental when it went up, when it skyrocketed and the interest rates were still low. I said, okay, let me try to find, you know, this um, inspector. And I found an inspector and his, um, or I'm sorry, not an inspector, an appraiser. And my appraisal came back like $200,000 lower than what I expected. There's no way. And I just ruined it, right? So if you find your real estate agent, a lot of times they're going to have everything under the sun already uh, ready to go and that's probably why i'm a good client because i'm probably the easiest person to deal with i'm like oh well, who do you got okay let's go with that one and then i think that makes closing a lot easier and because i'm such a good and easy client to deal with maybe that's why i get so many more deals coming my way so it is <laughs> because uh <laughs> you know we know like when we get deals there's you and Tony and y'all, Omid and y'all's whole crew. Like, okay, mm -hmm. these guys are don't make us want to like. They're not mean to us. That's that's really you know that's mm -hmm. how you get that. If you want a deal flow like Alex's, all you have to do is be nice to your agent. Is yeah. really it? Like, be somebody that they're excited to do a deal with. Um, because I know when I get a deal across my desk. I'm not gonna go call the the client that's been the meanest to me and made me cry at my yeah. desk. Uh, I'm going to call the client that has been, that's cool to work with. I'm like, oh yeah, I want to give you this deal because you've been awesome. I'm rewarding you. Like, I feel good about giving you that. Um, and you know, that I'm sure people will have something to say about that, but it's true. Yeah. And here's the story. Like I, I remember my second deal uh, you brought to me. Uh, I don't know why you brought it to me because it, it would have sold like a hotcake, right? And I was like, well, does it have closets? Does it like I was asking all of these questions and none of them mattered. Right. And then I, I don't I'm like, oh, my gosh, she's been texting me for like a, an hour here. Right. And in the end, I said, Avery, do I need to buy this deal? And you said yes. And I said, done. I don't know why I was asked. I don't know why I just wasted your time. And so now it's kind of like, well, Alex, you need to buy this deal. I'm like, OK, I got the money. Let's go for it. That's really what, how it goes. 
I'm sorry, like I, I'm probably not your typical investor who's like doing all of the research, but I did my research up front to find the right agent that's going to help guide me and grow my portfolio. My portfolio so. Well, thank you, Alex. So <laughs> let's hear from the agents then um, when it comes to recommending vendors and things like that. So we have to legally, I don't, a lot of people don't know this, we have to recommend you three. And a lot of people are like, oh, let me just, uh, whoever you want, just schedule them for my inspection. So um, we can't do that. We can give you their phone number because you guys have to talk about like what's important to you so you understand. And then also it's a liability. It's happened to me before actually, where I said, oh yeah, I always use this guy. And a few days after closing, or I don't know, a few weeks after closing, the uh, buyer came back and they were like, hey, the bathroom floor is squishy like around the toilet. And he didn't catch that. And then he was mad at me because I recommended them. And I'm like, okay, I'm not, not doing that again. So we have to recommend about three. And, um, but then you just call, call those three and decide which one you like the best. And make sure guys too, if you are new, let the, uh, let the home inspector know that and say like, okay, I know it's your job to point out everything that's wrong, but can you maybe help me a little bit with what's normal? What's not a big deal? What is a big deal? Because to me, everything's a big deal because I'm new. Um, so that's, that's my advice on that. Anybody else got anything? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, finding the handy, uh, a handyman that, you know, a, a lot of times your home inspector, excuse me, your home inspector, a lot of them used to be, you know, former contractors themselves and kind of do this work. Um, now, can there be a little bit of a conflict of interest in there? Yes, there could be. But don't be scared to ask your home inspector as well, because I love for my people to get kind of a an independent voice outside of mine. You know, I, I you know, as Alex said, you know, you find the right realtor and they give you all the information you need. But look, if if you're able to find a, you know, somebody that can, you know, fix whatever it is better than my guys at a cheaper rate and get it done quicker. Hey, good on you. You know what I mean? Like, awesome. Uh, but, I, I, you know, always ask the home inspector if they have any recommendations as well. Never hurts to get another opinion. Um, you know, also, get a roofer in your Rolodex. You know, you, you definitely you definitely need a good roofer. These metal roofs, and the problem is with the home inspection, the code on metal roofing and roofing in general changes like it changes like the wind. You know, how does this roof flange supposed to be? So you're you're kind of looking through the home inspection and you're thinking to yourself, oh, we need a new roof here. Well, not really. It was just the way they did it. You know, nine years ago is a little bit differently than they do now and codes change, the home inspector to kind of cover his ass has to make a note of this. And you think it's not functional, but the reality is it's perfectly functional. It's just now they do it a little differently. So having that conversation, have a phone call with the home inspector, let them walk you through the points that you may have concerns with. Um, yeah. Also, you may need a you know, you may need a landscaper. Some of these cabins, they do have a little bit of a green lot or something like that, or maybe it's just picking up deadfall. Maybe you want to do some installations of some uh, hardscaping and things like that. You know, all those things matter. Pest control, like Avery said, uh, a lot of people who aren't around from here, um, you know, I have a kind of a weird conversation with people that kind of make their, 
make them uh, freak out. And it's like, hey, we have carpenter bees, we have termites, and by God, we have flying squirrels. And <laughs> like, if you aren't familiar Hi, with God. flying squirrels, um, they can be, especially in these frame houses, they can get, you know, in the insulation and do weird things. I won't go into details about the weird things they do, but it can happen. And it's not a big deal at all. But again, having a, um, you know, ha having somebody in your Rolodex to take care of that is always, you know, a pest control guy is, is what you need. Um, the one thing I want to tell buyers to be concerned with are septic inspections. Everybody wants to do a septic inspection. Um, not a bad thing to do. You know, I tell people do it if you want to do it, spend the money if you want to spend it, but understand to properly. And again, I'm not a septic professional, but I've had multiple people tell me this to properly inspect a septic. You have to pump it because the hardware is down at the bottom of the tank. So if you got a guy, if you, you know, you do a Google search and you hit the top thing that somebody with a, you know, paid Google ad that you're not familiar with, he just opens the lid, shines his flashlight down there and says, looks great. 300 bucks. Have a nice day. Happens a lot. So a septic inspection is going to cost as much as the inspection plus a pump, which is a lot of money. If somebody quotes you, hey, we'll do a septic inspection for 250 bucks, you're not getting a real septic expansion. Exp inspection, <laughs> sorry. You're getting somebody opening up the lid, shining a flashlight down in there, and then cashing your check. Um, and and then, you know, that, that that's one thing I just tell people to be kind of, um, you know, cautious about when going into this. Yeah. And the last point I'll make is when you're hiring just a general home inspector, make sure you ask what things they do, because I've seen people make mistakes where they assume that he's also checking the septic and that he's also checking the well, but in the Smokies, a general home inspector just checks the actual house. They will check the water pressure, which could, if it's low, be result the result of a well problem, but they don't actually check that. So make sure you ask them uh, what all they do and if you need to do any supplementary inspections and if they have recommendations on who those people need to be for the supplementary inspections. But um, Can I yeah, add think... one thing real okay. quick on the home inspections? And this is, you know, you buy a, you know, you buy a house that's 20 years old. So a lot of these units start to hot water heater and furnaces and air conditioning, both. If they haven't already been replaced, they're kind of, let's just say they're, they're, you know, at the twilight of their career, so to speak. Inspectors say at the end of their life. That's right. Which I think is a little unfair, but a lot of times you're not going to get prorated based on some perceived life expectancy of a furnace, right? People say, oh, I didn't know the furnace was 20 years old. I want to get some money back before it. Really, from a list agent standpoint is, does it work or no? It's either yes or no. It's very binary here. You know, if it still continues to work, you're not going to get a proration on the the somebody's guesswork of a perceived life expectancy of a furnace or hot water heater. Yeah, you can always ask, but just make sure you understand that a lot of times a seller is not going to be willing to give you anything for something that still works, but that's the but that's at the end of its life. But my, I mean, my advice is you can always ask but just understand what the reality might be. Um, I think that is um, it. Or Yak, do you have one more point you want to make? 
I do. I want to thank <laughs> Alex for coming on. Yeah. And hey, I want thanks. to, you know, and I would say this if he you wasn't. You want me to buy something in Blue Ridge. That's us. what you want, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, but it, it is his humility and his ability to be humble that has made him so successful at this. Us agents, mm. especially us successful ones that do a lot of business, um, we want to work with guys like Alex. So be an Alex. You know, the Alex is yes. of the world. <laughs> Get all the good deals because they're a pleasure to work with and i want to thank him and, and everybody like him and, i agree which is the vast majority of our clients yes thank you alex we wow thanks you. for that <laughs> <laughs> yeah well on that note uh we will sign off uh we've got a few more awesome episodes coming up and i want to thank all of you for your time especially alex because uh, you don't work for me and um <laughs> I really appreciate it, everybody. Lots of good points on here. And hopefully the listeners found this helpful in terms of how to choose your buying team. So thanks, guys. Thanks, Avery. Bye, everyone. See you guys. Bye.